Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and good morning. Welcome to today's program, Community Matters, UCSF and the Bay Area's fight against COVID-19. My name is Kirsten Bivens-Domingo. I'm Vice Dean for Population Health and Health Equity at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine, where I'm also Professor and Chair of the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics. I direct the UCSF COVID-19 Community Public Health Initiative that supports the work of our faculty in partnership with community organizations and state and local departments of public health, an initiative working to help defeat this pandemic in the communities most affected by the coronavirus. Exactly six months ago today, the counties of the Bay Area took the lead in announcing the first significant shelter-at-home policy in the United States. The next day, life in the Bay Area changed drastically. My institution, UCSF, has committed itself to leading in the fight against the coronavirus, bringing the breadth of our science, clinical care, education, and partnerships to bear on this crisis. We have had a particular focus on the disproportionate impact that COVID-19 is having in our Latino, immigrant, and African-American communities, on our low-wage frontline workers who are unable to shelter at home, and on people who live and work in congregate settings. This disproportionate impact remains one of the most important stories of the pandemic in California and across the nation. Today, six months later, as the Bay Area slowly reopens its economy, I'm joined by several of my colleagues who have been at the forefront of fighting the pandemic in the Bay Area and across California, and in helping the nation to understand what we need to focus our energies on in the upcoming weeks and months. Before formally welcoming them, a brief note about the Commonwealth Club. The club continues to be an all virtual organization. Please visit www.commonwealth.org to learn about the club's upcoming programs and how you can support its efforts. Before we start our discussion, a final quick note that if you have any questions for me or any of my colleagues, please post them in the YouTube chat box or on Facebook or on the Facebook comment section, and the questions will be forwarded to me throughout the program, and I hope to get to as many of them as possible. So let's begin with some brief introductions. I'm joined today by Joe DeRisi, who's Professor of Biochemistry at UCSF and co-director of the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub, an independent research institute dedicated to eradicating disease. He's a basic scientist with a long history as a virus detective and inventor. Diane Havlier is an infectious disease physician and scientist and chief of the UCSF Division of HIV, Infectious Disease, and Global Medicine at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital. She's a veteran in UCSF's fight against AIDS. John Jacobo of the San Francisco Latino Task Force for COVID-19 joins us. He's director of engagement and policy for Todco Group, a San Francisco affordable housing and advocacy nonprofit and an appointed San Francisco commissioner. And Bree Williams, a physician and professor in the UCSF Division of Geriatrics and founding director of UCSF AMEND, an initiative dedicated to transforming correctional culture to improve the lives and health of people living and working in America's prisons. 
So with that, I want to welcome my colleagues and begin our discussion. So I would like to take us all back on this uh, um, anniversary uh, to think about what each of you were doing in March and April at the start. Um, each of you jumped in with both feet into this pandemic, really, uh, I think, because you knew what to anticipate seemingly before um, most of what actually emerged happened. And so I would love to go down each of you telling that story to give that sense for our listeners. Joe, let's begin with you. You're a basic scientist and acclaimed virologist. Um, you spent early um, uh, time in this pandemic setting up a clinical lab in eight days. So to really, to really tell the story, we don't just go back to March. We go back all the way to 2003, 17 years ago, where uh, I really got involved working on the first SARS, SARS-1. And that's where I had literally got my obsession with working on viruses and emerging infectious diseases. And that experience was uh, very formative for me. And I knew I wanted to spend many years after that working on applying technologies to the detection of emerging infectious diseases like SARS-1. And so then we can fast forward to the waning months of 2019. And what was I doing then? I was building basically an international monitoring network for emerging viral diseases. And basically we were installing technology and if you will, sensor nodes around the world in low and middle income countries to be able to detect new and emerging pathogens. And now if we go right to 2020, early January, I was in Cambodia, in Phnom Penh, setting up one of these monitoring nodes for the detection of new viruses when we began to hear some reports out of China that there was something funny going on, that there was a new respiratory virus, and it reminded me of SARS-1. So the end of January, then our sensor node in Phnom Penh, together with the Pasteur Institute there, was able to detect one of the first exported cases from China into Cambodia by a tourist and was able to sequence the whole genome. And at that time, late January, I was really thinking, well, this reminds me of SARS-1, and if it's like SARS-1, it's gonna burn out pretty fast. Uh, that you know, everybody who gets it will be symptomatic, will be able to figure out who those are, and by containment, this thing is going to pretty much be a flash in the pan, just like SARS-1 was. And it reminded me in every way of that. Uh, and obviously, I couldn't have been more wrong. And what we didn't know at that time was this asymptomatic spread characteristic of the virus that really lets it get out of hand. So that was the end of January. By the end of February, uh, we knew that we had something very different on our hands, that this wasn't going to be SARS-1. And here at the Biohub, which is you know, a nonprofit research institute tied to Berkeley, UCSF, and Stanford, we were sort of freaking out. We did not know what to do. Uh, it was the barriers to getting into testing, and testing clearly was going to be part of the solution here, were uh, looking to be pretty insurmountable. There's a lot of federal and state regulations around who can do clinical testing, how you do it, the procedures, and so on. And so we didn't really think that this was going to be something that we could do. We were thinking about surveillance testing, which you don't really tell people the answers and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and in early March, Gavin Newsom made an executive order that changed a key part of the, of the rules around clinical testing having to do with the personnel and the location. And that actually opened the doors to us to think about that. 
So immediately on March 12th, we decided this is what we need. The, the, there's no federal government that's coming to the rescue. The CDC isn't coming to the rescue. The state isn't coming to the rescue. No one's going to do this for us unless we do it ourselves. Uh, and we saw a great need all around us from our local counties to our local hospitals, supply chain problems. Uh, there was kind of an air of panic going on. And so uh, beginning March 12th to March 20th, we built an entire clinical testing lab here at the Biohub, which is adjacent to the Chase, you know, the Chase Stadium. And uh, we returned our first clinical result on March 20th. And so we were up and running in eight days. We recruited a huge army of UCSF volunteer graduate student and postdocs because labor was part of the problem. You couldn't get clinical laboratory technicians to do tests. They're just not enough people in the workforce. But here at UCSF, we have an entire workforce of extremely high-trained PhDs and postdocs with decades of virology experience uh, twiddling their thumbs because they had to work from home. How do we put them to work? And so we are able to recruit this amazing workforce of volunteers in who really desperately wanted to get into the fight, to be able to use their skills to have immediate impact. And so we were able to rally that army. We got them in here and we began turning around the tests. And really, who are we serving? We're serving our county DPHs, and UCSF, obviously, and uh, prisons, jails, safety net clinics, uh, long-term nursing care facilities, and of course, academic studies. And one of the most fulfilling things that we've done is work with my colleague, Dan Havler, and, and, and many of the, our other colleagues here at UCSF, including you, Kirsten. And, and these studies have been instrumental, as you'll hear, in understanding where the virus is in our communities. And so we've wanted to turn this testing capacity, not just for you know, random pop-up testing, but actually to sharpen the tip of the spear and get at the heart of this pandemic to stop transmission chains. Diane, let's let's turn to you. So you are uh, someone who has really been at the forefront of the fight against HIV AIDS and um, uh, you are also practice clinically. Uh, tell us about those experiences and what those led you to, to really focus on at uh, during March and April of uh, at the, the start of this pandemic. Sure, thanks. Um, it's great to be here with all of you. Um, first, just to say, nobody's ever ready for a pandemic, and it's just like AIDS or any other pandemic through history. Early on, there's denial, there's fear, there's miscommunication. Sound familiar? That's exactly what happened um, with COVID. So, um, you know, as an infectious disease per person, like, we're like, I don't even know how to describe it. We follow every single new epidemic that's coming around. Like I am committed to end the AIDS epidemic, but we still follow all the other epidemics. And we're on the edge of our seat watching what's happening, you know, through the end of December, January, um, February. So, I, you know, I think the, the moment for me of the like, we need to absolutely swing into action was when I looked out the window and there was the Grand Prince's cruise ship with all thousands of people on that cruise ship. We knew that COVID was circulating and it was just sitting there. And I was just literally picturing, you know, remember we're ID people, the viral particles circulating and infecting people. So it was at that time then um, 
it doesn't matter how busy you are, you know, we need to respond. And, um, and I think that, you know, comes in a couple of pillars. One is just reaching out to our city and public health department. So reaching out to Grant Colfax and say, we're here to serve. Um, secondly, is to make sure among my infectious disease colleagues that we have our clinical programs. We're anticipating what's going to happen. We're working in teamwork with the hospital. And then the research teams, um, our division has essentially non-laboratory research. So we help develop new drugs, new vaccines. Um, we study things. We do longitudinal studies to get all the researchers. What are the questions? What do we want to do? How do we get these all lined up? So that's kind of like the beginning of um, what that was. And that was right at the time in early March. Once a year, the AIDS folks, we get together a big meeting. And honestly, it was crazy. There was a debate. Should we go to this meeting? And I was like, no. You know, we have to stay and work in our own communities. And fortunately, the meeting was, you know, became virtual. But, you know, our commitment was to help our home community of San Francisco. So now just um, pivoting to um, uh, the research group that I have among the infectious folks in our division, um, as we were watching in the hospital what was happening, 80% of the people who were ill with COVID in the hospital were Latino. This is just striking because normally that number, that proportion is about 20 to 30%. So people who get sick, this is fortunate. It's, you know, it's a small percentage of all the people who get infected with COVID, but when they get sick, they do get very, very sick. The question was, where were all the other cases? Where was transmission occurring? And it, no one really knew anything about that. And um, this was really parallel to the work that we've done in San Francisco, the work that our group does um, in rural communities in um, East Africa. We're like, we need to understand community transmission. And anytime one is understanding community transmission is not about researchers coming in and doing things. It's about a group of people with a common goal, the community, the researchers, the policymakers, all deciding, yes, together, we want to understand this. So um, the way that, you know, the, 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 the sequence of events happened is what we said was like, let's look in our own backyard. Let's think about understanding a very specific census tract in the mission. So in terms of the community um, uh, partners, one of our um, uh, nurses from our program who lives in the mission reached out to Latino Task Force of John, which we'll talk about. And um, that is how um, we started our collaboration with the Latino Task Force, which I must say, Joe, talk, this has been one of my most treasured collaborations in my professional career, working with this truly group of uh, inspirational um, individuals. And you will feel that when you hear what all the things they're doing. So um, with our community partners, then um, we need to do all these assays. Like at this point, you know, the, the shelter in place order had been set. It's like, how are we going to do all these assays? We want to do thousands of assays and everybody's at home. So um, we needed to reach out to Joe and say, Joe, he had set up this lab. Would you be able to, can we work together on this? And Joe took like 10 seconds to say, absolutely, we need to do this. Um, and I just want to say one other conversation that I, I, it's really important that I had with John Jacobo. And that was, you know, first of all, we've told everybody to get home. We wanted to mass test people outside. How are we going to convince people it was safe and it was a good idea to go outside? And if we found there were a lot of people that were testing positive in the mission, would that create more stigma? Would that create more problems? And John said to me, you know what? 
we need this information. Our community needs this information. And he said it with confidence. And, you know, it's held true for all the work that we've done together. And John, I just want to thank you for your, you know, true leadership with this. And finally, we had thought about all of this and we forgot to think about money and funding. Like, how are we possibly going to do this? So this is, you know, maybe we should have thought about this first. But Joe, uh, you know, had the support to run the assays. And then we, I reached out to UCSF, to Kirsten, to our Chancellor Hoggood and said, can you support um, the funding for this? And the answer was yes. And then we also, like Joe, did massive recruitment of volunteers. And I have to say, in that first round, when we did the mission testing, that included uh, definitely family and friends of all of us. Okay. So we reached out, we decided we'd want to understand community transmission. We set a date, this was in April, and what we did was that we offered mass testing under tents at three locations, two schools in Garfield Park in the Mission District after the community had, under John's you know, leadership with Susana Rojas, had done mobilization. And what happened, 4,000 people showed up for testing. And we tested over a very short time period, 4,000, which was at the time in San Francisco, it was over 20% of all the tests that actually had been done to date in San Francisco. And this was a true community and heroic partnership and effort. So what did we find? So here we are six weeks into shelter in place. We're all thinking as we said, oh, this is not gonna be that much longer. Well, we were surprised and sobered to find that on a population level in this census tract, and this might sound like a small number, but it is not a small number, that about 2% of all persons had active COVID disease and 10% uh, among the workers. We also made a lot of observations that were very important. One of them was, you know, half the people were asymptomatic and had high levels of virus. At this time, we were only testing people who were symptomatic. As Joe said, one of the Achilles heel of COVID is asymptomatic transmission. And this resulted in changing some of the criteria for testing in San Francisco. We also learned that, and we could look at prior infections and current infections. Initially, the infections had been spread about, um, you know, across demographics, but over a very short time period, it really had settled into individuals who actually needed to go out to work, couldn't work at home on their computers, like many people in the Bay Area can. And this, you know, happened to be the Latinx population, and it happened to be folks who lived in really high-density um, uh, congregate settings. So we established, you know, what are the people who are most highly affected, low-income, Latinx, unable to um, uh, work at home. And then I think also very importantly, we can't just test. And, you know, we're going to test and we're going to respond. So in partnership with the Latino Task Force, really pioneered a program of how do we respond to people who are um, PCR positive? You know, what are the things they need to go in isolation? What are the things that they need um, to do for quarantine? And this is not just an office kind of project. This is an on the ground, you know, boots on the ground project of which members of the Latino task force um, led. And what we did was that we provided, um, we did a small fundraising campaign. We provided food, cleaning supplies, and education to individuals and households um, uh, that were um, dealing with COVID. And at the same time, linking to Joe's group, Joe's group was sequencing all the viruses, showing that there were multiple circulating strains um, of the virus, I think probably as we expected in this COVID, in this mission census track. So I will stop there. And that's kind of how it started and what we learned early on. Thank you, Diane. 
John, let me turn to you. Uh, what was happening in the community at this time? What led you to jump in with the Latino task force? And and what led specifically for you to, to jump into this partnership with UCSF that Diane describes as being so transformative for her and her group? So yeah, first of all, it's great to be here with, uh, honestly, with some, with some great allies that have allowed uh, the Latino community of San Francisco and particularly the Latino task force to benefit from uh, the gathering of information that we've been able to get to. Um, I guess a little bit of how all of this kind of connected or what kind of gave me some insight into, into what would be uh, six months later into shelter in place. Ironically, the, the March primary had just wrapped up um, here in San Francisco in the state of California. Uh, and like most election cycles, I was busy with uh, a couple of campaigns, like many folks in the mission district, um, you know, and, and really, I think that kind of connects to how what Diane talked and mentioned about um, with this with this whole study that we did in April, right? It's this ability for community to get together around issues that are important, right? In some cases, they're ballot measures. In some cases, they're candidates. In some cases, they're festivals, right? But community has a way of connecting, coming together, putting a plan forward, and making things happen. Um, and so just a few days before we went into shelter in place, we're wrapping up this March primary. But I think that that connects and that it really did help prepare what we would eventually be moving forward into, which is where we are now. Um, the Latino Task Force, for folks that are not too familiar, is a completely organic, 100% uh, community-driven, community-led, community-implemented group. The benefit that we have in this community also comes from some of the painful truths of this country is that we have a lot of very strong leaders that have become very savvy, strategic, tactful uh, from the decades of battles of combating things like gentrification, combating things like disinvestment, and trying to take those negatives and try to make them positives. So in a sense, trying to leverage um, the power that we have been able to amass as a community and try to bring that back down to the folks that have the least. And so right as shelter in place went into effect, uh, we as a community knew that if jobs are closing down, many of the folks that are working that are barely able to survive as it is in one of the most inequitable cities in the country um, are going to have a severely hard time if there's no paycheck. When we know that a majority of our individuals from our community sometimes are not documented, don't have the benefit of state benefits or federal benefits or a stimulus check or any of the above, um, let alone be able to purchase enough to shelter in place for two weeks. And that coupled with what would happen with schools shutting down and where parents would send their kids and how would they still survive. I mean, there's situations where people are living 10 to a one bedroom, sometimes more than that. What are you doing through the day? And so a group of community members led by folks like Valerie Trulier-Lewa and Tracy Brown, Roberto Hernandez, Gabriela Lopez, and Gloria Romero, just to name drop a few, um, really started to put this whole text thread together, this idea together. But it's important because none of us at the time knew what this would turn into six weeks later when we would have the good grace of connecting with UCSF. At the time, the focus was truly survival. It was ensuring that people had enough food that people were able to get the basic services that they would need to survive. But again, like many of the unfortunate imbalances in this country, we know that it's just not the economic survival 
we then started to see anecdotally through through what Dr. Havlier mentioned with General Hospital and reports out of the Bronx in New York, the disproportionate impact that we were seeing amongst the black and brown communities, particularly low-income communities, that are already just trying to survive. So now let's just add on an entire pandemic and say good luck. And so the Latino Task Force went from um, distributing maybe 500 boxes of food a week to what has grown into 7,000 boxes of food a week, about 28,000 boxes of food a month. We've built up an essential services hub where individuals can collect rental relief, where individuals can come and apply for jobs, try to find the different basic needs of survival that we need, in addition to COVID testing. So uh, at this six-week mark, UCSF approaches us and has this concept about doing in-community testing. And, you know, part of my background has also been in policy and advocacy. And I know that data is power. I know that knowing polling stats is power. I know that understanding those dynamics helps you in leveraging the narrative to be able to produce the results that you intend to produce. And so we were doing no testing in the field. Everybody anecdotally knew Everybody knew somebody that lost sense of smell, that was really sick, but like couldn't get tested unless you traveled somewhere, which you probably didn't, and knew somebody who had COVID, which nobody could get tested, so you probably didn't. And when this was proposed, of course, part of the community had severe concerns because of a, a legacy of what I would call abuses from the structures of power, letdowns that have happened historically that have nothing to do with any of us here right now, but have historically. And, and that sentiment was important to overcome. And part of what I'm very thankful about is that the intuition on the onset was correct in partnering with Dion Jones and Dr. Havlier and Dr. Karina Marquez um, and has actually proved beneficial in that the partnership has become so ingrained that folks are willing to show up at six in the morning to come and get tested at a bar plaza. Uh, and I think that speaks to the holistic kind of approach of how we kind of got to this. But Excellent. Thanks, John. Um, so uh, let me turn to Bree. Uh, Bree, you you work in a completely different um, area, um, uh, but uh, but an area um, of uh, the health of uh, those who are living in prisons um, to uh, that has been uh, critically important in, in the story of this pandemic. Um, of course, we all know about uh, San Quentin and one of the largest outbreaks nationally, um, uh, San Quentin and the and the, the series of prison transfers. But even before that, um, as the pandemic was just starting, you were already sounding the alert about where our attentions needed to focus. Tell us about that. Sure. Thanks so much for having me here today. So I direct a program at UCSF called AMEND. AMEND draws on the basic tenets of public health and human rights to completely transform cultures in U.S. prisons to improve the dignity, humanity, and health of residents, or prisoners, people incarcerated, and staff alike. And we do this through close partnerships with multiple people, correctional and policy leaders, community advocates, and people living and working in prisons. And during the pandemic, AMEND has brought our healthcare expertise to partner with these communities and correctional facilities throughout the nation to try to improve prison responses to the pandemic. But if I go back to sort of how this all started and why, in February and March, just as the pandemic was starting, I was visiting a prison. And I'll be honest, the experience shook me to the core and has haunted me ever since. I mean, I visit a lot of prisons and I visit them often. And the prisons that we saw in uh, February and early March were typical. We spent a lot of time in some dorms, 50 to 100 people each, most older adults, many of them frail, 
a lot in wheelchairs, many in poor health. They sleep in bunk beds that are placed just inches apart from each other. They have an open bathroom. But now I was seeing these dorms against the backdrop of this looming pandemic. And during our visit, residents and staff expressed profound fear, really horror, terror, about COVID-19 entering the facility. How many of them were going to get sick? How many of them would become seriously ill? How many of them would die? The concern, unfortunately, was very well-founded. Um, the pandemic has brought, obviously, a spotlight to many broken systems in our society. As for jails and prisons, many are overcrowded. Many are unsanitary. They have very poor ventilation, especially the very old facilities. And they're filled with a population of staff and residents who are often in very poor health at baseline. So these are basically the perfect breeding grounds for COVID-19 outbreak explosions. And hundreds of thousands of staff enter and leave these facilities every day. Um, these are not the cruise ships <laughs> that were parked uh, in the bay. These are, these are interacting with our communities all the time. And it became very clear to me in a very visceral way uh, that there is tremendous risk to residents, staff, and of community spread touched off by a prison uh, outbreak. So our team was very motivated by these concerns, and we began to try to outline a coordinated response. Briefly, our, our biggest goal was to communicate, to communicate with community leaders, with politicians, with academics, uh, with the public, basically anyone who would listen to us about why COVID-19 outbreaks in prison would pose such an extraordinary risk. We published articles in the popular press and professional journals. We engaged in partnerships, drawing on some of our previous relationships with departments of corrections and policy leaders. We even developed informational videos uh, for staff and residents that were used across multiple states and prisons and jails really throughout the nation. And in those early days, we focused on six primary public health responses that we were hoping would avoid catastrophic outbreaks. First, decarceration or population reduction, basically anything to help enable physical distancing in these overcrowded and unsanitary facilities. The second was to cohort residents and staff into mini communities to insulate other com mini communities from each other inside the facilities to minimize the spread, um, to develop ethical guidelines for the use of medical isolation and quarantine so that we wouldn't trample on people's human rights um, by imposing like punitive solitary confinement where residents can't leave their cells for years at a time, communicate with anyone or get outside to optimize testing and information sharing. And honestly, the Biohub hub has been incredible in that endeavor, especially with San Quentin. To shore up partnerships between departments of health and prisons, a lot of times prisons and local jails were not even on the radar screen of many local county departments of health and really creating those inroads and those relationships was key. And to improve occupational health so that staff had paid sick days for exposures, free testing and hoteling to stay during outbreaks to keep their families safe. So I think I'll stop there. That was really our initial response and concern. Thank you. Um, that was great and uh, really uh, interesting to take the, the trip back and remember what it was like in, in March through each of, uh, each of your eyes and experiences. Um, but now we're six months, uh, we're six months in. Um, if we thought we were surprised that it didn't end after eight weeks, we certainly are probably surprised that we're quite in the thick of it at, at six months. A lot has also happened um, around us and around the pandemic. Um, certainly, uh, um, there is increasing social and civic unrest. 
um, that uh, really is a, 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 mar a large part of the backdrop. There is a worsening economic uh, crisis, uh, particularly for the communities that we are talking about here that have been disproportionately affected. And we seem to be um, uh, still quite squarely in the midst of, of all of the, the things we're wrestling with, with the clinical and public health response to this uh, pandemic. We know a little bit more scientifically, but we're still we're still uh, struggling to, uh, as we saw through our second wave. I'd I'd love uh, for you to reflect on the thing that is either most surprising to you about where we are now, or what you think is most uh, necessary from, from your vantage point now. You are each speaking from particular testing, the innovation, the, the clinical care, the community partnerships, thinking about very specific populations in, in uh, prisons and jails. What is surprising that six months in, we're still not getting this under control? And what do you think needs to be to, done in order to turn the corner here? I'm going to start with whoever wants to jump in first, but if not, I'll call on you. From my own perspective, which is more on the technological side, you know, I, I'm not surprised on the basic science side too. I'm not surprised that we don't have great drugs yet. That's not surprising. Developing drugs takes a long time. It's really hard. I'm not surprised we don't have a vaccine by now. That's really hard too. It's going to take a lot of time. It's got to be right. It's got to be done safely. Um, there's going to be a lot of swings and misses, and that's part of doing science. So that doesn't surprise me at all. I am surprised that we still don't have sort of statewide, really integrated testing that is widely and cheaply available. Uh, we are still doing what we were doing back in March here at the Biohub with all our fantastic Biohub staff and our UCSF volunteers. You know, it's great to do the studies, but I thought we'd be out of a job by now. I thought we would have statewide, easy, accessible, super cheap tests, uh, you know, 25 cent or 10 cent little dipsticks, you know, that you just spit on and they would turn color, yes or no. Well, it's still science fiction. We still don't have those. And yet the, the science to do them is out there. Uh, and yet that hasn't happened. And I'm very disappointed by that. And I thought we'd be there by now. I'm also disappointed that we have not got our information systems together. One of the things that has stymied our ability to respond and react is an artifact of our patchwork system of county DPHs and different jurisdictions whose systems fundamentally do not talk to each other. Uh, one information system doesn't interface with the other. There's no easy way to transmit information. You've all heard about the failure of the CalReady system at the state level. Uh, and this goes on and on and on. And this is, you know, really exemplified by the fact that, you know, many uh, early on, many of our uh, DPHs and others that we work with who are doing the best they can with very meager resources, uh, when we had to transmit results, they wanted them to fax them to them. That was the only way they could get a result was a fax machine. And here we are in 2020 using 1980s technology uh, and their fax machine broke halfway through. I mean, this is crazy. And so I'm disappointed that the technology, here we are in Silicon Valley, has not risen to the level to fix these fundamental problems that are stymieing our efforts to make a coordinated response and bring the data to the top to organize appropriate intervention. 
Yeah, that's uh, and surprising, certainly in California, where we're at the cutting edge of innovation and uh, and uh, digital technologies and, and all of these things. Um, so you're but you're describing that the science is there to do this type of thing. It's really the infrastructure and the coordination um, that that really has has really stymied a lot of, of, of bringing this innovation where it needs to, to be. And the fact that you're still in this business, that is, uh, yeah, quite striking. We know how to do this. This is the heart of biotechnology. Biotechnology and the revolution of molecular biology was started here on the peninsula. What the heck? <laughs> Diane, talk a little bit about the, the, the regional response. Joe is talking about um, each county does its own thing. Um, one of the testing um, efforts that you've led just recently really, um, really uh, struck at both the, the need to be in the neighborhood where things are happening, but also the implications for the region because you were testing in BART, which is our Bay Area regional transit system. Talk a little bit about that. I wouldn't say, what am I not surprised about? It's more, what am I dissatisfied about? Because I think, you know, back in the spring that what we learned is that populations were being disproportionately affected. And um, what we know is we, um, with John Latino Task Force, we just did a testing at the 24th and Bart Street Hub um, a couple of weeks ago. We just put up tents. This was not a purposeful sample. It was a convenient sample. But among all the people that just got testing and showed up, 9% were PCR positive. And that's just shocking. And that is completely like unacceptable because we knew back in April which populations were being affected. So what it says, there's a couple of things it says. One, it says, yes, people were lined up to get testing. We have not met the demand of testing. We need to do it where people are most willing to test. And we need to recognize what low barrier testing is. Like, it's not that, you know, some people can't go online. They can't make an appointment. They can't do They just need to show up and get a test. And we can do that. We can do that in a very, very efficient way. So one of the things we have to do is to just continue to offer low barrier testing. But John, I'm sure we're going to speak about this. We can't do testing without a financed response. And what do we mean by a financed response? We need to provide support to the individuals who are most being affected by the epidemic and provide support to the people who are helping them get them through this time period. You know, one, you know, you've all the other obligations and people are just, you know, barely having enough food. You know, everybody in this call should just go by the Latino Hub on a Thursday and see all the people lining up waiting for food. It is honestly, I feel shameful as a person who lives in San Francisco. Things are really, really tough. So when we think about the response, it's got to be you know, you've probably heard about these models. We need to test every single person in the United States every week. No, we don't need to do that. What we need to do is do smart, frequent testing in the populations that are most affected and then provide the response. So we're not just documenting the problem. We're documenting and we are responding to the problem. And one of the things is happening, you know, we want to get towards our society opening up more. You know, this this particular epidemic is not just about um, one neighborhood, you know, one city, because we are all connected by transport. So that's why we are working at transport both to um, because it's a convenient place for the community, but also as we move forward, it's a place to understand and monitor, perhaps, um, if the city or, you know, health officials think this is good to invest in um, what's happening just in terms of transportation. But I, I, I would just say, you know, 
ultimately, a lot of the issues we are facing right now, Joe's talking about, you know, we're the, the biotechnology hub of really the planet. You know, when we think about it, like we know that Mass works, mass should be used, social distancing should be used, mass are a public health intervention, they're not a political intervention. We just simply haven't done that, you know, uniformly. And we have to remember, everyone needs to have the message that as we open up, it's not just about opening up, it's about opening up and more rigorously applying these public health um, principles because there absolutely is a huge cost. Um, you know, for the economic engine of our society, but also for the children in our society, what we're doing right now. So we're failing on the bringing the innovation to uh, in a coordinated way, but also on our basic public health measures. And one of the things you're talking about really is targeting our resources where they're needed most um, in the communities that are that are most affected. And I, I think if people want to should come by and uh, and really see the extraordinary work that's being done at the hub, John, maybe you can talk about what has surprised you or what you think needs to be done. This pandemic uh, has been full of surprises, but. Um... You know, I think what I'm most surprised about, uh, I'm from the city of San Francisco. I happen to have a bias in thinking that it's one of the greatest cities on the planet. Um, I think we have some of the brightest leaders. We have talented, uh, very talented governmental leaders, but we also have very bright community leaders. And I think what has surprised me most is this city's inability to leap to the issue and tackle it head on. And it's been incredibly frustrating as a member of the Latino task force, um, as, a, as a person from the Mission District. Um, we have been saying since April, at the very latest, let's say, that there is a serious fire happening here in the southeast sector of San Francisco, in particularly the Mission District. This isn't new information. This isn't new data. We've known this. And I, I keep using this analogy, but it's the best way for me to illustrate how I feel the response has been by our governmental partners to tackle this. I feel that we have been given buckets of water to try to put out a five alarm fire. And I think that it surprises me that knowing the data, because data is power, as I alluded to earlier, that our folks and our partners in government haven't been able to be nimble enough to move quick enough to be able to address this. The Latino Task Force Resource Hub, again, I might have a bias because I'm, I'm there often, but you're talking about hundreds of volunteers that show up to provide boxes of food, to provide the essential services to a community who is living on the margins. One of the things that we found in the April study of all the people that unfortunately were COVID positive was that 90%, 95% of the respondents were from the Latino community. 90% of them claim that they did not have the ability to work from home, meaning they were essential workers, and 88% of them made under $55,000 a year. In a census tract and in a neighborhood where an average two-bedroom is $4,600 a month, you describe to me how it is people that are living in those margins are able to survive. So the people that we are helping at the hub are folks that truly do need it at, at the most. And it's not a secret. It's well-documented. The city knows. But unfortunately, today, a lot of us have still been volunteering with no resources being contributed, no monetary resources. We get a weekly testing that we've had now um, where we're able to test 250 people every Thursday, and it's a beautiful experience, and I love that we can provide that. But it's not fair to know that as a city, we've tested 176,000 people at the Embarcadero, 
uh, where you need a vehicle, where you need to be able to register online to show up. And now I believe you can walk up. But to know that in the neighborhoods and in the areas where the highest level of infections are, we've only tested north of 4,000 people, uh, that's, that's frustrating. Um, so I think what surprises me most is that we haven't been able to move as quick as a pandemic is moving. And what I hope now is that our city leaders are truly hearing community and are truly going to partner with in a respectful and thoughtful way to help get us where we need to go. Because one of the things I consistently say, and I think this is true, and anybody in the Sunset or the Richmond could agree with me on this, if we know that the heart of the pandemic right now is happening in the Southeast sector with essential workers, then it would behoove all of us to ensure that we're helping protect them so we ourselves can stay safe. If it's not your thing to protect people to protect them, do it for your own good. And I just think that we need to figure out a way how to move quicker to get that done. Uh, yes, I, I I love the way that um, that you've articulated that. I, I think there is both the um, we should do it because people are suffering, but there's there is a, such a strong sense that none of us are going to get out of this pandemic unless we pay attention to uh, to the communities where there's such a, a high need and a high burden of disease at this point. Um, Bree, um, you were educating and uh, Amend was educating at the beginning of the pandemic, doing the advocacy, and we still saw really what is, um, has, has been, uh, much has been written about it and that so much suffering came from a series of prison transfers, the large outbreak in, in San Quentin, and then really seeding, as you always point out, these community outbreaks across California, really, um, uh, as a result of, of things that, that started and were fueled in, in the prisons and resulted in deaths for both um, uh, prisoners and people who are working in prisons. Um, uh, have uh, uh, such a, a stark thing, we, we should have learned the lesson um, uh, or anticipated this. What Describe to, to uh, the listeners now what has surprised you, maybe not just about that, because that was certainly shocking, but, but of where we are now. Are we in a better place now to, uh, to think about how we care about uh, people who live and work in this, in this clearly uh, higher risk uh, environment? So yeah, unfortunately, what's transpired over the six months have not been surprising. Um, as of today, I was just looking at these numbers even though many states don't test or don't re publicly report cases, at least 175,000 residents have been infected, over 4,500 have died. At least 21,000 staff have been affected, infected, about 400 have died. Um, but, you know, jails have done a great job at decarcerating, but prisons really haven't followed suit. Um, I'd say, though, the most surprising part that's really been kind of the bad news surprising part, and I... I'm like horrified to even have to say this. It seems so obvious, but it seems like we are constantly having to remind policymakers and community members that people who live or work in prison who are disproportionately people of color are people. Their lives and their health matters. They were not sentenced to get sick or die of COVID. And it's shocking to me and continues to be shocking to me how easy it's been for some to, people to discount these lives, even to the point of ignoring the threat that the prison outbreaks pose to surrounding communities. You know, prison systems are still developing testing plans of residents and staff, um, staffing plans. There's been poor engagement of public health departments across the nation with the area, local jails and prisons. There's poor coverage of the problem in the nightly news. There's poor centralized responses. There are very few states have tactical outbreak response teams. So the beleaguered healthcare professionals in the, in the prisons who are never 
trained to deal with a massive pandemic are really the only people on the front lines taking care of patients and also making a plan for how to deal with the pandemic. I guess another surprise is that there have been actual sprinklings of really good news. And um, this is this is absolutely important to, to focus on as well. Um, on a federal level, there are bills that are um, under review to optimize testing, to improve transparency, really for the first time in American prisons. We've had a great opportunity to help with some of these bills. We've seen new state legislation, you know, most, most recently a clearer career path for incarcerated fire, firefighters following their release. But um, there's been some remarkable public and private initiatives. In California, there's the Returning Home Well Initiative which is a $30 million project that matches state investment with very generous philanthropic dollars to provide essential services, things like housing, healthcare, transportation, employment support, even financial support to people returning to the community through, during COVID. And um, on an academic frontier, just like the others have been talking about, um, researchers and community and opinion leaders have really developed knowledge in record time. So we now know for certain that outbreaks in correctional facilities drive and fuel spread in the community. For example, a study in Chicago lin linked one in six COVID community cases to the outbreak in the jail. We know that the mortality rate of people who get COVID-19 while they're incarcerated is five times that of people who get it when they're not incarcerated. And we know that staying uninfected once an outbreak occurs in a correctional facility is immensely challenging both for officers um, and, and, for, um, and for the people who are incarcerated. So I'd say that there have been some really devastating truths, um, but there have also been some bright spots. That's, uh, that's excellent. I, I think that um, uh, uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, the, the, the surprising and things that people have focused on most are things that, that really aren't bright spots, but I think there, there have been those that have emerged from this, and I think we have to take some small comfort in, in those. We have a question from, uh, from the audience about uh, really asking us to focus on what are the things that each of you are focused on in the upcoming weeks and months. Is it um, vaccines? Is it new technologies for testing? Is it um, uh, the winter surge of cases? What are the things that are most on your mind that you're most worried about or most expecting uh, to see happen over the next few weeks and months that, that you're focused on? Who wants to jump in? John? I'll, um, I'll, yeah, I'll go first. Um, I, think, I think because it is... Um, I think because it is pressing and, and we just had a, a productive meeting with our city leaders where they've committed to to do more to try to ensure that we're on the ball, right? Uh, in, the, in the couple of coming weeks, months, what I really hope we can do as a city, right? But I, but I think when I say let's do this great as a city, I really do think that San Francisco helps set the trend for a lot of the other counties that are neighboring. And I think that if we can get it right here and you can prove that it can be done, you can scale that up. And I would hope that that is what can come of this, right? So for me, it would really be that our strategic testing takes off and that we're really in the neighborhoods and the areas where most things are impacted and that we're able to ensure that we can tell people that, you know, unfortunately you have a COVID-19 diagnosis, you have to stay home, but that we provide the resources for those most on the margins to be able to stay home. From the April study with Dr. Havlier and the UCSF team, one of the policies we were able to come up with was the right to recover. First in all the 58 counties of California, but it's important because 
if you are a day laborer, if you are undocumented, if you don't have access to sick days, if you don't have savings, and somebody tells you, hey, you're asymptomatic, you have COVID-19, but you can't go to work, and you're between the choice of putting food on the table for your kids or wearing a mask and trying to go out as safe as you can to collect a paycheck, what do you think you'll do, right? And I personally don't want to take the gamble of putting somebody in that position. So the right to recover was designed essentially to ensure that if folks don't have the ability to gather any kind of other income, that they have access to pay for those two weeks that they're going to have to unfortunately be sheltered in place. So for me in the coming weeks, what I really want to see at a very local level is expanded strategic rapid testing, low barrier testing, pull up, give me a name, give me a number, get your test, but also the resources to match to ensure that we are giving people the diagnoses, but we are also caring for them thereafter. And lastly, I just hope that the city does partner with the community groups that are leading in the Bayview, that are leading in the Excelsior, that are leading here in the Mission District, and do it, again, in a respectful, thoughtful way to build the kind of trust that we're building through our UCSF projects with community. So in the next couple of weeks, I hope that's what we can do locally. Um, I can go next just to just to say overall, um, as I mentioned, folks in our division do clinical research. So the larger members of our team are working on clinical trials for vaccine and for treatment and also studying individuals who have lingering symptoms um, after they recover from a COVID case. Our um, research group in collaboration um, with uh, Joe and John and the Latino task force over the next couple of months, this is the focus. What we want to do is building on what John said is strategically test, low barrier testing. We want to collapse what we cause, call the cascade. The way testing has an impact is people get the results and go into isolation. And right now that whole cascade is so slow for informatics, all these reasons which are solvable problems, we want to collapse that cascade. And we want to show it can be done. You know, we can go from symptom or test to isolation, supported isolation and quarantine in less than 24 or 48 hours. That's priority number one. Priority number two is we want to understand is as we go forward, does it make sense that we're offering testing in larger geographic areas at transportation hubs? And we have ongoing conversations and collaborations, um, you know, based on what we're learning now with both Bart and Muni. You know, we continue to call for public health focused decarceration. It is past time for a national reckoning with mass incarceration in America. Um, and our very prolonged punishments uh, over rehabilitation or health. Uh, obviously, prisons cannot operate at or even close to 100% capacity during a pandemic, but really they shouldn't ever be, be overcrowded. Um, second, outbreaks have really posed a lot of confusion for community healthcare professionals and community hospitals who are really unused to taking care of so many patients from prisons. And there's a lot of confusion about whether patients can fill out do not resuscitate orders. They can. Um, if staff can contact family members for decision making, they can. Um, and as a result, every state really needs to be developing local guidance around the rights and ethical care of seriously ill patients transferred from prisons to community hospitals. And we're working on that as well. Um, a couple other things. Occupational health is really critical. So protecting people in prison also means having a laser focus on shoring up occupational health in these facilities, um, which have really been historically quite poor. Um, and that includes also partnering with community advocates and incarcerated people to understand how to make early vaccination acceptable for them so that people feel safe and comfortable 
taking a vaccine if it's available to them, including people who work in prisons. And then we really need some centralized outbreak response teams in each jurisdiction to be deployed to any prison. And that's some of what we're working on now so that when an outbreak occurs, the beleaguered healthcare leaders there are not kind of left alone trying to take care of patients' symptoms and figure out how to deal with ventilation and sanitation and patient flow. They need help to from the outside with experts who know how to help with staff and resident cohorting and testing and the like. Thank you. Joe, it looks like you're going to have the last word. What are you looking forward to or what needs to happen as we go forward in the next weeks and months? Well, let's see. What would I hope for or look forward to is, uh, you know, I, I would hope that somebody passes legislation that bans the use of fax machines. Um, you know, that would be a really, really major uh, advance in our technological acumen here in California. Um, I don't know, John, maybe you could help get that legislation written. Uh, but in Diane all seriousness, and I are laughing actually, because fax actually, machines are like, you know, bread and butter for like, you know, clinical medicine, unfortunately, Diane and, and Bree and I. So I'm sorry you had to realize that in the most um, absurd way possible. But yes, yeah, banning yeah, fax machines. No, it has be been a theater of the absurd when it comes to fax machines. Uh, but no more about that. You know, one of the things I'm looking forward to uh, is, um, well, Several weeks ago, the governor announced a new private-public partnership that would dramatically expand testing in California, you know, doing more tests per day than has ever been done cumulatively uh, on any given day prior to that in one facility or in a subset of satellite facilities. I think that would be extremely exciting. I think that what would come with that would be big changes in our information systems, like no fax machines and other things like this. That would be extremely exciting. And I do think it is the time where we really need to now integrate modern science into what we're doing. It's not just about the test. We have a, a, a team that's been working very closely here with CDPH and our county partners on the genomic epidemiology. That is the sequence of every virus. And why is that important? It's because we can absolutely track with precision where the transmission, where the transmission chains are occurring basically who is linked to who in that transmission chain, where the introduction is coming, has there been a new introduction of virus you didn't know about, or is it the continuing transmission within the community? Uh, those sorts of things can help us rule in and rule out different scenarios that then result in actionable intervention. And most of the time, the, test, the vast majority of testing that's done in California or in the United States or over the world isn't taking into account that key piece of information that would also allow us to estimate the unseen amount of transition that's going on in our community, as well as have having more of a precision response to where things are occurring. Uh, and we, we have the science, we have the technology. If there's gonna be centralized testing and uh, widely available, we need to integrate those layers in so that we can be more effective and uh, more informed about where we make these interventions. And then we can do things like spreading these kinds of studies that John and Diane have enabled so amazingly to, um, for example, our, our farm workers in the Central Valley, to the farms of Humboldt County, all over the place, where we know the similar sorts of characteristics are occurring to what happened in the mission. And we know that those populations are not getting the testing or interventions that they deserve. Uh, and so this model needs to spread beyond San Francisco, too.
Thank you. Thank you. Those were really great reflections. Unfortunately, that is to all that we have time for in today's program. We could talk for much longer. Um, I hope that all of you will continue to follow the work of UCSF um, that is happening in partnership with um, our community uh, partners over the next months ahead. And again, Please follow the Commonwealth Club at www.commonwealthclub.org to follow all of the club's upcoming programs. I'm Kirsten Bibbins-Domingo, and this virtual Commonwealth Club program is now adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.